0: Now, this afternoon, we're talking about the true and counterfeit gift of the Spirit. But I want to introduce you to a friend of mine who's had a dramatic encounter with God, and the Holy Spirit transformed his life. So, Will, come on up. And uh, I met Will about a year ago. And, Will, I've got the mic on, so you're going to have to... We don't have a handheld, so you're going to have to stand pretty close to me. Is this your first GYC, Will? Yes, it is. First GYC. Uh, two years ago, what were you doing?
1: Um, I was partying and drinking... doing a lot of drugs.
0: Okay, party, drinking, a lot of drugs two years ago. About a year ago something happened in your life. What was it?
1: Uh, My mother had invited me to
0: go to Discoveries 08. Down in Orlando, Florida. Orlando, Florida. Now the first night you came was rather interesting. Mm -hmm. What, 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 What was the state you were in when she brought you to the meeting the first night?
1: Well that Friday, the night before, I had drank about 18 beers. And I came to church pretty hungover, smelling like alcohol. So, Will walked into the meeting down in Orlando.
0: He was hungover. He came to my evangelistic meeting and uh, he, his mother kind of dragged him there. But what happened in your heart, Will, the first night?
1: I felt the Holy Spirit and uh, I went up front and I gave my life to God that night.
0: And in that commitment, what happened as far as your habits are concerned?
1: Um, I quit drinking that night and I quit smoking that night. I had November 7th made me it my first it was my first year sober, uh-huh. and, uh, and God has changed my life so much in that last year. And what
0: doors have opened for you during the last year?
1: Well, I was uh, first of all I was unemployed. I still was able to get money for alcohol. Mm. Um, got uh, got me a job working at a Florida hospital where I talk to the patients. And I pray with them on a daily basis. Um, they share their testimonies with me, with me, and I share my testimony with them. Um, the church has me give my testimony. I mean, I'm just doing so many different things for God. And, you know.
0: What is the difference in your mental state and the difference in the peace of mind you have now? What were you looking for in alcohol that you did not find that you discovered in Christ?
1: Well, it was like a shadow, everything. I really can't remember 10 years, you know, because I smoked for 10 years and I drank for eight. And uh, I really can't remember everything, but I know it was dark, it was cloudy. Um, But when I was baptized in November, my vision and my memories and just the love that God has for me just peered into me and I was able to just like see again and feel the love that God has for me, you know, and I feel reborn.
0: The Holy Spirit is alive. Here is a young man that walks into our evangelistic meetings hungover. But yet, through that besottered mind, the Holy Spirit touches him, changes him, remakes him, and he's out there now working at Florida Hospital witnessing for Jesus. As we start today, let's have a prayer for Will and a prayer that God's Spirit will continue to move. Father, I thank you for Will. You brought him in off the streets and you transformed his life by your Holy Spirit. And here he is today, a witness for God. Here he is sharing his testimony with others, and we thank you for that, Jesus. We know that your Holy Spirit is real. We know that your life-changing power is real. Now I pray thee that you'd bless Will, continue to open doors before him to serve you. And during this meeting this afternoon, give us a glimpse of your glory and your power. We pray thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Will. God bless my brother. When you go out and work for Jesus and the Holy Spirit works in your life, you see life, lives changed for God's glory. I was giving a Bible study back in Tennessee. We were, the the little log cabin was off the main road. We had gone up a dirt road and week after week for months I had been in what we call back in one of the Tennessee hollers. Now, if you're from Tennessee, you know what I'm talking about. Any Tennesseans here today? All right, back in those hollers. You know, you go back in there, and you wonder if anybody lives there, and you keep going back and back further. I was in this log cabin, dirt floor, and uh, giving Bible studies. I had been giving studies to this family for a number of months, and one day a man walked in. And the first words out of his mouth were, Praise the Lord, I'm healed. Then he said again, praise the Lord, I'm healed. Now all the time we were smoking a big cigar. And as he, psh, psh, praise the Lord, I'm healed. Psh, praise the Lord, I'm healed with this big cigar. This was many years ago when I was young in those days and not quite as diplomatic. So I looked at the big cigar man. And I said to the big cigar man, yeah, big cigar man, but what about your cigar? What were you healed of? And as he smoked the big cigar, he said, Praise the Lord, I'm healed of lung cancer. And he repeated it. Praise the Lord, I'm healed of lung cancer. And I said, Tell me your story, big cigar man. So as he smoked his cigar, he said, About six months ago, I went to the doctor. I was having trouble with my lungs and trouble breathing. The doctor took an x-ray, and they found a spot in my lung. The doctor told me that that was... Cancer. I have just gone back to the doctor now, and he took the x-ray, the lung is clear, and I am healed. Praise the Lord. And I said to the big cigar man, I was not too diplomatic, I said, but sir, what about the big cigar? And this is what he said to me, young man. Now you can know this was a number of years ago. Young man. If you have enough faith, you can smoke as many cigars as you want and cancer will never touch you. If you have enough faith, you can smoke as many cigars as you want and cancer will never touch you. My question is, what is faith? What is faith? Is faith believing that, I have ca- that if I have cancer and I believe hard enough, I will be healed. Is that faith? Is faith believing that if I am, don't have enough income and I pray hard enough and I believe hard enough that I'm gonna find 10,000 in the mail tomorrow? What is faith? Is faith a good luck charm that enables me to do whatever I want believing that God is a cosmic Santa Claus is going to be give me the gift I need and do, uh, that I desire what is faith faith in fact in the Bible is so important and incidentally faith and the Holy Spirit are closely aligned and this is a series on the Holy Spirit we're talking about true and false manifestations of the Holy Spirit so we begin by faith looking at faith for a moment Luke chapter 18, faith, and I'm so glad that so many of you brought your Bibles, that you're taking notes, that you're underlining. Somebody asked about questions, after this section, I'm going to let you write out any questions you want, turn them in between this session and the next session, and then I'll start next session by just taking your written questions and answering them at that time. Luke chapter 18, verse 8, faith is so important that in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus says, he's speaking about the end time, the time that we are now living. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on earth? Jesus is so concerned about genuine, authentic faith that it will be in short supply just before he comes. The Bible says, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on earth? In other words, is there going to be genuine faith? There's going to be a lot of counterfeit faith, a lot of false understandings about faith. But will there be genuine, will there be authentic faith on earth? What is faith? Well, it's so important that God gives an entire chapter in the Bible on it, Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Because before we can ever understand the genuine and the counterfeit manifestations of the Holy Spirit, it's important to understand the nature of biblical faith. Because the nature of biblical faith and the Holy Spirit are closely in- aligned. So Jesus says, in the last days of earth's history, will faith, be, faith will be in a short supply on earth. What is faith? Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Substance. Submarine. Sub means under. Stance means the essence of a thing. It's the essence, faith is the essence of that which stands under your entire religious experience. Faith is the essence of that which supports. Faith is the very foundation of your Christian experience. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the foundation of the things that we hope for. Faith is the essence of the things we have not yet seen. For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. He talks about by faith we understand that the world was created by God. This is just verse 3 by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. One should never try to prove creation by science. I believe there's adequate scientific evidence to reveal creation, but there are loopholes. There are questions that we don't have all the answers to. That doesn't trouble me at all. Because I believe the scientific evidence for creation is greater than the scientific evidence for evolution. If you think we have some loopholes, we don't have all the answers in creation, we don't. There are some things we don't understand, still some things in the scientific world that we can't explain. That doesn't trouble me one bit. There's a lot that the evolutionists can't explain. But you, can't ne- you can never take faith out of the Christian life. And that's why the Bible doesn't say, by science, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. It says, by what? By faith. Faith is the foundation. So we accept the Genesis account by faith, and we look for the scientific evidence to confirm that faith, but we're never going to have complete scientific evidence, because if you want to prove creation by your intellect alone, you leave out faith. And faith is the essence of what Christianity is all about. So do we have evidence for creation? Sure. But don't ever look for lock, rock-solid arguments that are going to leave no questions because the existence of God always requires faith. Now, what is faith? And how does faith relate to healing? And how does it relate to the Holy Spirit miracles? We're going to look at verse 4 and onward. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. "...through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it being dead still speaks." Did Abel have faith? His faith was so good, it got him killed. If Abel did not have faith, he would have lived. But since Abel had faith, he died. Now, don't lose me on this one. Some people say, if you have faith, you will always be healed. But the first illustration in the Bible is a man who had faith and died. If he didn't have faith, he would have lived. Did Cain have faith? Cain didn't have faith. And what did Cain do? He lived. But Abel had faith and he died. Abel's faith was so good it got him killed, you see. Abel had faith and offered an animal sacrifice. Cain did not have faith. And he had presumption and he died. Now look at the next one here, verse 5. By faith Enoch was translated so he didn't see death. Now I'm getting real confused here. Abel had faith and he died. Enoch had faith and he lived. Let's keep going here. Very interesting. Verse 7. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear and prepared an ark. Noah had faith and he followed exactly what God said, and he stayed in the same place and didn't leave his hometown for 120 years. Verse eight, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to the place that he would afterward receive an inheritance. Noah Noah had faith and he stayed, and Abraham had faith and he left. (laughs) Abel had faith and he died, and Enoch had faith and he lived. We're gonna keep going here if you think you're confused now. Verse 11, by faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. Well, Sarah had faith and she conceived. Did it take Sarah faith to conceive? How old was she when she had the child? 90. 90. If you don't think that is faith, talk to your great-great-grandmother. <laughs> faith had, Sarah has faith and she has to have faith or she's not going to receive the child. But look at verse 17. By faith Abraham, where he was tested, offered up Isaac. So, Sarah has faith, and she receives the child. Abraham has faith, and he offers up the same child. Abel has faith, and he dies. Enoch has faith, and he lives. Noah has faith, and he stays. Abraham has faith, and he goes. Sarah has faith, and she receives the child. Abraham has faith, and he offers up the child. We keep going. Joseph has faith, verse 22. And Joseph has faith, and God sends him into Egypt to become a rich man. Moses has faith, verse 23, and God leads him out of Egypt to become a poor man. Now, wait a minute. Where are we going here with this? Abel has faith and he what? Dies. Enoch has faith and he lives. Noah has faith and he stays. Abraham has faith and he goes. Sarah has faith and she conceives a child. Abraham has faith and he Offers up the child. Joseph has faith and he goes into Egypt and is rich. Moses has faith and he gives up the riches of Egypt and he comes out. Whose faith is greater? Abel's or Enoch's? Whose faith is greater? Sarah's or Abraham's? Whose faith is greater? Moses. Now, what kind of really brings this whole chapter to a conclusion and begins to have the lights turn on in your mind on the nature of biblical faith, is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. It's talking about these worthies of faith, and it says they quenched the violence of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. So here these people through faith escape the edge of the sword. Imagine it. A Roman, persecu- a Roman persecutor is running up "...to take the head off a Christian, and the Christian has faith, an invisible angel holds the hand of that Roman persecutor, the sword shakes in their hand, they drop it, and the person escapes the edge of the sword by faith." But then look at verse 37. "...they were stoned, they were sawn in sunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword." So verse 37 says, these people had faith and they were slain with the sword. And verse 34 says, these people had faith and they escaped the edge of the sword. What is faith? Let me give you a definition of biblical faith. Here's where Hebrews 11 is coming from. Hebrews 11 gives us examples that are contrast pictures to teach us that faith has nothing to do with what's happening around you, but everything to do with what's happening inside of you. Faith is trusting God as a friend well-known. That leads me to do whatever he asks, regardless of the consequences. Mm -hmm. Faith, this is biblical faith, faith is trusting God as a friend well-known that leads me to do whatever he asks, regardless of the consequences. So faith is able, saying, Lord, I'm going to offer this sacrifice because faith is trusting you and it's obedience to you. Faith leads Abel to die, but faith leads Enoch to live. Living or dying is not the issue. Trusting God and glorifying him in my life is the issue. Staying like Noah in your hometown and never traveling to the mission field, but witnessing for God and building the ark where you are, is faith. But if God calls you by, like Abraham, you better not stay like Noah. Are you with me? Because faith is neither staying nor going. Faith is hearing the voice of God in your heart and trusting him and doing whatever he asks you to do. It takes as much faith to stay in your home church of 42 members than it does to go to the mission field for six years and preach to 6,000. Faith is doing what God tells you to do in the heart. It's trusting God in all circumstances. It takes faith to conceive a child, but I'll tell you something. When those kids are teenagers and you've got to give them up, it takes faith too. You see, whether you conceive them or whether you give them up. It takes faith to be poor, but it takes a lot of faith to be rich. So the issue is not whether I'm rich or poor. The issue is, do I trust God and do whatever he asks me to do? So what is faith? Why was the big cigar man wrong? Because he thought that faith was his telling God what God was supposed to do for him rather than trusting God and opening his heart to be obedient to God and letting God transform his life. So in the issue of the Holy Spirit and healing faith says Lord I know that it is your will to heal but I'm not quite sure when the time is. The time could be an immediate healing, it could be a gradual healing, it could be a healing when you come again. I know that your character of love wants me to be healthy but I also know that I live in a sinful world where sickness takes God's children. And if you're calling me to glorify you in death, I want to do that. If you're calling me to glorify you in a gradual healing, I want to do that. If you're calling me to glorify you in an an instant healing, I want that to happen. And I'm going to show you in the Bible the biblical concept of the Holy Spirit and healing. Then we're going to look at the counterfeit manifestations. Genuine biblical faith is trusting God as a friend well-known, knowing that he'll never do me any harm in any circumstance in my life, and a willingness to do whatever he asks, whatever it is. When I trust a friend, and I have a close friend, I know that that friend will never intentionally do me any harm. Isn't it a wonderful thing to have friends like that? Yeah. To know that you can trust them. To know that they're never going to intentionally, willingly do you harm. To know that they always have your best for them. Some people say they got you back. You see. That's what a friend is, isn't it? They are somebody who's honest with you, somebody who's open with you, but somebody who's there will never intentionally do you harm. God is like that. God never intends harm for us. And even if we are in the midst of a sinful, rebellious world where sickness comes, God will take that sickness and use it for his glory and either heal us instantly, gradually, or allow us to go to sleep as we trust him to bring glory to him, once this dawned in my mind, it made a big difference, and it's this. There is something more important than my individual healing. It is the glory of God. God's glory, and if God can be glorified with instant healing, praise his name. If I can glorify him through the afflictions of the body during the time that life goes on and I can be a witness to others, praise his name. And if I have to close my eyes and sleep, praise his name. There was a time in the Gospels where Jesus had healed people all day. And the next day, he walked away and left sick people. It wasn't because they didn't have faith, and he tells you why. And I'll tell you how I learned of this Bible passage in Mark 1. And if you have your Bible... I was sitting with Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you have heard that name, Johnny Erickson Tata. You'll remember that she was the teenager. You may have seen the movie On Her Life or read the book On Her Life. She was in a diving accident and became a quadriplegic. She had a spinal cord injury after the diving accident. She couldn't use her hands and couldn't use her feet and I was sitting in her studio and I was putting pencils in her mouth as she did mouth drawings. She was, in, she was using uh, soft pencils at the time and I'd put a pencil in her mouth and she would use it and she was drawing like a horse and pictures and, and I said, what's the most difficult thing to draw about drawing like this? And she said, the lousy taste of these pencils. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, she'd have to bite him like this, and she was just an amazing person. But we left there to do some traveling. We're, I was sitting in the back of her van, and I said, Johnny, have you ever um, been concerned that you weren't healed? And how have you worked out a theology of healing? And she said, you know, Mark, when I first had the accident, I was, and had this spinal cord injury, and I was paralyzed from my, uh, my entire body. She said, I had many Christian friends come, and they said, we're going to pray for you that God will heal you. We're going to pray for you that God will heal you. And she said, one day I was reading, and in those early days, she would, of course, have her Bible above her head, couldn't use her hands, and it would be on a little stand, and she could learn to turn the pages with her tongue. She is one of the best Bible students that I have met. She's just a great, uh, tremendous uh, Christian committed woman. And uh, she said, Mark, when I read Mark chapter 1, and she gave me insights on Mark 1 that I had never seen before. I had read it time after time after time. But if you take Mark 1 and you start with verse 32, and she began to go over this passage with me, explaining to me a biblical theology of healing that makes so much sense. It's Mark chapter 1, verse 32 and onward. It says, Now at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those that were demon-possessed. So here you have a city in verse 32 of Mark 1 that brings to Jesus everybody who's sick and who's demon-possessed. Then it says, verse 33, the whole city was gathered together at the door. So you have scores of people, tens, hundreds of them that are sick. The whole city is at Jesus' door. Then he healed. What's the next word after healed? Verse 34, what is it? Healed what? Is many all All is not many, and many is not all. Uh, He heals many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. So here he heals many who were sick. Next, the night comes. Jesus goes to sleep, verse 35. Now in the morning, having risen a great while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. There's certainly a relationship between Jesus' prayer life and Jesus' power. Verse 36, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everybody is looking for you. Why do you think these people were looking for Jesus? What happened the night before? Yeah, they were looking for him, why? To To get healed, because he didn't heal everybody the night before. There were still people sick, and they wanted to come and be healed. So here are people that want to be healed the next day. Now, what is Jesus' response to Peter when he says, many still people are sick and they're not healed. Jesus now elucidates and gives us light on the reason why he came. Peter says, everybody's looking for you, verse 37, verse 38. But he, Jesus, said to them, let's go into the next town that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I've come forth. So Jesus is very clear. He doesn't say the purpose I came forth is to heal sick bodies. He says, the purpose I came forth is to do what? Proclaim the gospel. Because no matter how many people Jesus healed, there would be still more people that were sick. So Jesus came not to give them seven or eight or ten more years of this life. He came to give them eternity. And he said, this purpose I came forth, to, to preach the gospel, to bring glory to God. So the purpose of Jesus' ministry was certainly physical, mental, and spiritual healing. But Jesus recognized that you can heal the body, but if you don't transform people's lives spiritually, they're going to die and they're going to be consumed in the lake of fire. So he said, the greatest issue of life is bringing glory to the Father. For this purpose I came forth, to glorify my Father, to proclaim his word. So any understanding of, of healing and the Holy Spirit must factor in these two things, one, that faith is not a good luck charm to get God to do what I want him to do. That faith is trusting God as a friend well-known, knowing he will never do me any harm, and that faith accepts his way rather than mine. So any theology, any biblical teaching of healing and the Holy Spirit has to link those two things. Secondly, that the purpose of the gospel is not predominantly physical healing, but spiritual. And where physical healing can bring glory to God, Jesus pours out his power and healing. But there are times that greater glory is brought to God by the gradual healing or by revealing God's love during the time of healing. Now, there are prophecies in the book of Revelation that reveal that one of Satan's greatest delusions in the last days is going to come over this issue of counterfeit healing. And I want to look at those prophecies, and then we're going to go back and say, how can you tell the difference between genuine and counterfeit healing? We are living in a generation, the postmodern secular generation, that says, you have to show me before I believe show me before i believe now here's what's going to happen because we live in a society that has dismissed god's word and a hollywood generation that does not want to study very much but wants the instant the one of the major problems of mass media is that mass media gives instant solutions to complex problems when you spend 120 million on a movie to rape the brain, it does just that. And it's not merely the content of the movie, but it is the titling sensation that occurs as you sit on the edge of your seat in a spellbinder that destroys the brain for rational study. That's the issue. That's the issue. It's not only the content, it's the medium that so stimulates the brain that Revelation 21 looks boring. Because when you allow $120 million to so stimulate those brain cells, you're allowing the devil to rape your brain. And you're surrendering that mind to another force. And so what happens is, then you go to study the Bible and it seems so boring when it's the most exciting thing in the world. When you take that which is unreal and make it real, it takes that which is real and tries to give you the impression that the real is unreal and the unreal is real, and the mind becomes confused between the two. So what the devil is smart, the devil is really, really smart. He was Lucifer, the covering angel. So here's, here's what he's going to do in the future. I'm not a prophet, but I read the prophecies. See, I'm not a prophet, but I read the prophecies. If you can take a whole generation of youth and saturate their minds with mass media on television, and you can get them to disbelieve the Bible and, dis- and become skeptical about God's word, and if you destroy the mind for rational study, but yet the heart longs for transcendental reality, The heart longs to know that there's something out there, you see. So you develop a lot of movies that have the great controversy theme. You develop a lot of movies that have a demonic, satanic theme. You see where this is going. You stimulate the emotions with this satanic theme, with this great controversy theme. You stimulate the emotions then you counterfeit genuine biblical religion that's life transformational with false miracles. And because the mind is not understanding the Bible, because we have a whole generation of biblically illiterate people in America today, you counterfeit the study of God's word, which is life transforming, with the spectacular. And the spectacular sensational captivates the mind. So what do you do? you work false miracles, false tongues, false healing. The, the people that are the most open for the false manifestation of the gift of tongues today are the intellectuals, because they want experience. They want an experience, you see. Look, look at it from another way. In a computerized, non-personal society, when the devil gives you the counterfeit gift of the Holy Spirit, and that so-called fills your heart, and it's love everybody, don't we long for experience? Don't we long for love? Don't we long for the genuine, the authentic, the real? So here's what the devil's gonna do. He's gonna take a cold, impersonal society that's looking for reality, and he's gonna give them a substitute religious experience. And in that substitute religious experience, there's gonna be some kind of power, there's gonna be false miracles, there's gonna be signs and wonders. I wanna show you that from Revelation, and that's what's gonna lead to the mark of the beast. I want to show it to you from Revelation, then I want to teach you how to tell the difference between the genuine and the counterfeit from the Word of God. But first, let's go to Revelation. We've looked at what biblical faith is. Now we're branching into what's happening in our world. We're going to go first to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. The devil is preparing a genuine... uh, He's preparing a counterfeit for this world. We're gonna to go to Revelation chapter 13. We're gonna kind of get a little bit of the setting of this counterfeit manifestation. And um, we'll look at Revelation the thirteenth chapter. And you'll look there at Revelation 13, and let's start with Revelation 13, verse 13. He performs great signs so that he makes fire come down from heaven on earth in sight of man. Now remember in the Bible, you're with me before. First class, fire represents what? The power, presence, and glory what of God. That's the genuine fire. But if the devil is making fire come down from heaven, what's that? It's the power and presence and glory of the evil one. It's the counterfeit. You know, because in the book of Revelation, you have three representing the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But you also have the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. You have, so for everything that there is a genuine, there is a counterfeit. So you have the genuine manifestation of the gift of tongues. That is the true manifestation that God gives of the ability to speak in a language that people understand, and we're going to look at that the sec- to preach the gospel. You also have the false manifestation of the gift of tongues, which are tongues of fire, which is a... You have the true Holy Ghost movement and the false Holy Ghost movement. So the fire that comes down from heaven represents the false manifestation of the Holy Spirit that leads to deception, to put it simply. Okay, so we're looking at verse 13, or verse... Yes, 13. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in sight of man. Verse 14. He deceives those... What does he do? Deceives. deceives those who dwell on the earth. How? What is the method that the devil uses to deceive secular people? Secular people say we are intellectually honest if seeing is believing, right? So, verse 14, he deceives those that dwell on the earth, how? By those what? Signs or what else? What is that word? Miracles, miracles, which he has granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those that dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and did live. Why do they make an image to the beast? What causes church and state to unite over a false day of worship? What causes that according to the Bible? I heard it. What is it? Miracles. Miracles. In other words, if you have a society that already in the back of their mind has been conditioned by Hollywood that that there's a... great controversy between good and evil. If they already say, seeing is believing, I won't believe anything I can't see, And if already they're longing for something in their hearts that they don't know what it is, and the devil palms off false miracles at a time of crisis, when the economy falls apart, when there's economic disaster, the stock market crashes, where people are unemployed, where there's natural disasters, and the average person says, wait a minute, we need something to bring us together. And what's that going to be? The devil's going to use false miracles, and he's going to say, seeing is believing, here it is. Now this is all through Revelation, once you begin looking at it. Revelation chapter 16. What is it that's going to bring the kings of the earth and the religious powers of the earth together? Revelation chapter 16. And we're going to look there at verse 14. Revelation 16, verse 14. For they are the spirits of devils performing what? Miracles Miracles or signs. So can the devil perform miracles or signs? Can he? Yes. Will he do that in the last days? Yes. Will some seventh-day Adventist be taken in? Yes. Why? Because, they've, because seeing, is seeing is believing. Because rather than opening God's Word and letting the Word transform their lives, this brand of Adventists wants something spectacular and they need external emotion to make up for the internal moving of the Spirit on their life that reveals sin that they don't want to look at, that that cleanses them from sin that they don't want to face, that empowers them to witness to the world and make sacrifices they don't want to make. See, the genuine manifestation of the Holy Spirit, fire does three things. What are they? You see why the important this morning was important? Fire does what? Reveals. So the genuine Holy Spirit is going to be manifest in that fire that reveals the nature of our hearts. And once God shows us our meanness and our criticism and our gossip and our selfishness, fire reveals. Fire then Consumes The fire, the true fire of the Holy Spirit is going to lead us within to have hearts broken over sin. And fire empowers. The true fire of the Holy Spirit is going to empower us to witness. But the false fire is going to give an external experience of signs and wonders and miracles that bypasses. There's going to be more of an emphasis on the, on the gifts of the Spirit than on the fruits of the Spirit. And God is never going to equip you with the gifts of the Spirit unless you manifest the fruits of the Spirit. Because what I am is always more important than what I do. You can do without being, but you can never be without doing. You can do without being, but you can never be without doing. So the devil is going to give people an external experience. So we look there at Revelation chapter 16. We're looking at verse 14. They're the spirit of demons working miracles. They go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So, it is the false miracles that bring the kings of the earth into union with the religious leaders of the earth to prepare them for the last battle of Armageddon or, or the final battle on earth. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. What I want you to see here are miracles, false miracles, are the agency that the devil uses false miracles, false signs, false wonders, false prophecy. It's the, it's the agency that the devil uses. Now, can God work miracles? He can. Will God work miracles in the last days? He will. But is there a difference between genuine and false miracles? There is. So, Revelation 19, verse 20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs or miracles in his presence by which that by which is important by which he the devil deceived those who received the mark of the beast how did the devil deceive those that received the mark of the beast how did he do that through what through miracles did we see in revelation 13 that false miracles were a were a method of deception did we see that did we see it in revelation 16 Do we see it in Revelation 19? Now, I'd like to let Ellen White in the book Great Controversy summarize this idea of false miracles. Great Controversy, page 464. These two paragraphs bear intense, careful study. And I'll read... The prophet of God, the messenger, the remnant's words to this final generation. And then I'm going to ask you some questions about each sentence. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth. What are the, what's the final visitation of God's judgments on the earth? What do we call that? Seven last plagues. Good. Before the final visitation of God's judgments on the earth, the seven last plagues, there'll be among the people of the Lord a revival of primitive godliness. As such not has been witnessed since apostolic times that's good news isn't it what's on the way a revival of what kind of godliness primitive that's Bible religion the spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children What's we call that when the Spirit of God is poured out on his children the latter rain and the latter rain comes so we can give the what the loud cry so here is a prediction in which Ellen White amplifies what the Bible says, that before the seven last plagues are poured out, there's going to be a revival. And that revival is going to lead. And in that revival, young people, adults, are going to be on their knees. They're going to be seeking God in little groups of three, four, and five. They're going to be opening their heart to God. They're going to say, God, send me the baptism of your Holy Spirit. Immerse me in the Spirit. Reveal to me the sins in my life that I don't see. Show me in my heart where there's selfishness and pride and greed and lust. And Lord, reveal that to me. Consume that by your Holy Spirit. Energize me and empower me by the fire of the Spirit. So before the seven last plagues, there's a revival of primitive godliness. The Spirit and power of God, I love this. It doesn't say maybe, possibly will happen, will be poured out upon His children. This revival is coming. The only question is, are we going to participate in it? There is some generation that will be serious about the reception of the Holy Spirit. There's some generation that will open their hearts to God and say, Lord, we've been in this world long enough. We've been in here long enough. Some generation will receive the Spirit and power of God. Now, the enemy of souls, continue to read in Great Controversy. The enemy of souls. Who's the enemy of souls? Who is that? Satan. Satan. The enemy of souls desires to hinder this work. What work does the enemy of souls desire to hinder? The revival. And the revival leads to what? Pouring out of the Holy Holy Spirit. Spirit. And that leads to what? The latter rain and the loud cry. So, follow me closely. Over here is the coming of Jesus. Before the coming of Jesus is the seven last what? Plagues. Before the seven last plagues, when probation closes, something must be given called the loud cry. But the loud cry or the proclamation of the gospel can never be given until the latter rain falls. But the latter rain cannot fall until there is a revival. Okay? Now... Satan desires to hinder this work. What work? The revival. Why? Because when the revival comes it'll lead to the latter rain. When the latter rain comes it'll lead to the loud cry. People will accept the message of God, probation will close, and the mark of the beast will have occurred, and the seven last plagues will be then poured out, and then Jesus will come. Okay, so the enemy of souls desires to hinder this work, and before the time for such a movement will come. So before the time for such a movement will come, before the genuine, before that time, before the revival, before the latter rain, before the loud cry, he Satan will endeavor to prevent it. What does Satan want to do? Prevent what? The revival. Prevent what? The latter rain. Prevent what? Loud cry. Prevent what? Coming of Jesus. He'll he'll endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit. Does the counterfeit come before? Or after? Before. Because if the counterfeit came after it, what would be the purpose of having the counterfeit when people have already been filled with the genuine Holy Spirit? So, now follow this. He will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit. In those churches which he can bring under his deceptive power, he will make it appear God's special blessing is poured out. He'll make it appear that God's special blessing is poured out. There will be manifest what is thought to be great religious interest. Multitudes will exalt that God is working marvelously for them when the work is that of another spirit. Under a religious guise, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the whole Christian world. The devil knows that if he can rein up our emotions with a false counterfeit religious experience which appears to give a lot of touchy feely love which appears to make people feel good he can prevent the genuine revival the genuine revival is bold faced repentance weeping before God because of the failures of our lives but it doesn't leave us there if that's all you had you'd end up guilty and depressed and discouraged the genuine revival begins with repentance every great religious revival in history has begun with repentance now I recognize that sin is a bad word in the society that we live in the tolerance is the word you have your way and I have my way but there are some things that God still says are sin selfishness and greed and lust and anger and bitterness and resentment are not merely genetic aberrations. They're sin. And, and the genuine revival begins on our knees when we say, God, you have shown me what I'm like, and I don't like it. Now, Lord, I need your power of your spirit to cleanse this man from within. I need you to make me over And there are gonna be groups of young people and adults that are praying, that are confessing their sin before God, that are receiving the grace of Christ, that understand the forgiveness of Jesus, that understand the passion of Christ, that understand the love of Jesus, and they see themselves and then they see the cross. They leave their knees with a sense of peace and forgiveness and power that the shackles are broken and a sense of victory and God empowers their life. So what is the essential difference between the true and the false manifestation of the gift of the Spirit? To state it simply, it's this. The true manifestation of the gift of the Spirit leads me to a broken-hearted repentance for sin, and it leads me into an encounter with Jesus that empowers me to go out and witness to the world. The false manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit lead to an external feeling good, and they bypass the Word of God. The Spirit dwells in our life through God's Word. The words that I speak to you, John 6, verse 63, Jesus said, they are spirit and they are life. As the same Holy Spirit that inspired the Bible, the same Holy Spirit that inspired the Bible, transforms our lives when we re- read the Bible, the same Holy Spirit that brought the world into existence, the, the, the spoken Word of God, is the power in God's spoken word of creation is manifest in His written word in recreating our hearts? Are you with me? The same power, any approach to revival now I'm going to get out a little out on the edge here. Any approach to the Bible that is based solely and alone on music and testimony. Any approach that's based solely alone on music and testimony is going to be superficial and not life-transforming, and lead people to an illusionary experience. Genuine revival must come from a careful study of God's Word that is life-transforming, that takes us deep. The creative energies that called worlds into existence are in the Word of God. It transforms our lives. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, take your Bible, please, and go back to Matthew 7, verse 7. Matthew 7, verse 7. There is a genuine revival on the way. But notice, that genuine revival leads us to Christ. It leads us to a transformed life. It leads us to an obedient heart. There is no genuine, authentic revival without obedience. Matthew 7, verse 7, starting with verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. So the issue is, does this revival lead to repentance, commitment, transformation of character? Does it lead us to do God's will? Many will say to me in that day, many, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Did they prophesy in his name? Yeah, they say they did. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did wonders in your name. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. He never knew them. They were prophesying in his name. He never knew them when they were doing that. He says, I never knew you. He doesn't say, I don't know you now, but I knew you then. He says, I what? Never knew you. And never is never. Because if never was never, never would be sometime. And sometime is not never. And never is not sometime, right? Okay. He says, I never knew you. You you never knew him? They were casting out demons in his name. They were doing wonders in his name. But it was external show and pomp, and it did not lead to the doing of God's will, because all the time they were casting out demons in his name, in the background they were doing lawlessness. Or they were running around, they were doing their adultery thing. They were filled with pride and arrogance. See, they were, oh yeah, they were casting out in his name, so called. But they were filled with anger and bitterness. They didn't resolve the conflicts between people. They thought that the spectacular substituted for the transformation of character that only Jesus Christ can bring. Genuine Holy Spirit religion leads to a transformation of character, and it puts an emphasis on the inner rather than the outer. What is the difference between the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit? God will never fully endow us with the gifts of the Spirit in their fullness unless we reveal the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, long-suffering. The fruits of the Spirit are the internal character qualities that come to us as day by day we come before God and seek Him. The fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 are those inner character qualities that come into the life of the believer as we spend time with God every single day. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, by beholding I become changed. So the fruits of the Spirit are the internal character qualities that God gives to us as we spend time in his presence. The fruits of the Spirit have to do with the transformation of our characters. The gifts of the Spirit, on the other hand, are modalities to witness that God gives to every believer. God does not tell us to seek his gifts. He tells us to seek his fruits. And he tells us to claim his gifts. We seek his fruits. We claim his gifts. We seek the fruits of the Spirit for the transformed life and character. We believe that for every believer, he gives us gifts. We claim those gifts. In our next session, I'm going to talk to you about the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to take a look at those gifts. I'm going to look at the gift of tongues and the true and false manifestation of the gift of tongues. And we'll take a look at that. Just as this session ends in the next five minutes, I do want to look at the genuine gift of healing in the New Testament. James chapter 5. James chapter 5. I have had recently some amazing experiences where I personally believe God has manifested his hand in some unusual physical healings. Does he do it every time? No, he does not. But when we follow James chapter 5, the truth is so apparent in contrast with the false that you see it immediately. There are... Four major thoughts presented in James chapter 5, and I want to look at them with you just momentarily as we kind of bring this session to a close and then come on to our, to our next session. We're going to look at James chapter 5. What are the earmarks of the genuine manifestation of the gift of healing? We're going to start with James 5 verse 13. Here we go. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, there are four lines of reasoning that I want to look with you at there. This distinguishes the genuine from the false gift of healing. Point one. Is this a public meeting or is it a private meeting? What does the text say? Is this the kind of meeting where a guy walks on in a flashy suit and rings on every hand and he says... Over there, you got heart disease, you got cancer. You know, is this the kind of meeting that that's taking place in? Okay, so from the text here, this meeting is a what kind of meeting? Private, private meeting. Now, there's a reason for that. And I am not suggesting that God doesn't heal sometimes in public. He does. But that's not this meeting. This is a, this is a private meeting. Secondly, where is the initiative for healing coming from? who is it the sick individual individual. exactly this is so doesn't that make you kind of suspect then of anybody that gets up and uh, superimposes healing upon somebody in the congregation Mm -hmm. so this is not a public meeting it's a private meeting where an individual comes to the elders of the church and the Bible notice what the Bible says Here, it says, is any sick among you? Let him or her call for the elders of the church. So they are doing the calling, and there's a reason for that. So the first point we're making is that it's a private meeting. The initiative for healing is with the individual. Secondly, it says, let them pray over him. Why pray? In prayer, we acknowledge that we have absolutely no power for healing. In prayer, we acknowledge that all healing must come from God. In prayer, we acknowledge that we don't know what to do, but God can accomplish that which we don't know. So it says, the person calls for the elders of the church. The Bible says, let them pray over him. Anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, we need to look at anointing oil. Anointing oil. In the Bible... Why doesn't the Bible say, light a candle? Because a candle is a symbol of the fire of the Spirit. Why doesn't the Bible say, "Um, open the window and let the wind blow in? Because wind is a symbol of the Spirit. Why doesn't the Bible say, bring cleansing water? There's a reason, anointing oil. When you study the sanctuary in the Old Testament, every time the priest was consecrated, he was consecrated with oil. When the sanctuary was inaugurated, the altar and candlestick was anointed with oil. Now, this is a very important point. So we're going to look at it. Exodus 29, verse 7. Exodus 29, verse 7. Because I'm tying our class together just now with some things that once you understand become powerful in helping you to distinguish between the true and counterfeit manifestations of the gift of healing. Exodus 29, verse 7. Aaron and his sons are being set aside for ministry. They're being set aside for service. They're being set aside by God. Same expression in Exodus 29:7 as we have in James 5. Critical to understand. Exodus 29, verse 7, And you shall take the anointing oil and put it on his head and anoint him. What were they doing with the person in James 5? You took the anointing oil. Did you put it on his toe? Did you put it on his thumb? Where would you put it? On his forehead. What's happening in in Exodus 29? The priests are being set aside for God's service totally by putting oil on their forehead. So the anointing service, we anoint with oil. Oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Anointing with oil on the forehead is a symbol of consecration and dedication. So, here is a private service where the elders are going to pray and where the person is going to be dedicated to God. This is not a service where we're commanding God to heal. It's a service where we are dedicating heart, mind, soul of that person to God. Now, notice also, for example, Exodus 30, verse 25. Exodus 30, verse 25. Exodus 30. Verse 25. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil. An ointment compounded according to the art of perfume. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony. The priest and tabernacle were anointed, set aside for holy purposes. So, why then do we bring olive oil when I do an anointing of a person that's sick? They've requested it. We come. We tell them there's no power in us. We tell them that that based on the Word of God, that we are seeking the manifestation of His Spirit. We tell them that we are going to follow James chapter 5. We're going to anoint with oil. And that the anointing oil is a symbol that their heart, their mind, their life is being set aside... Now, the Bible says here, in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. Did you see in James chapter 5, it says, anoint them in the name of the Lord. What, when we pray, we pray in the name of what? Jesus. What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? Mind and spirit of Jesus. Okay, what else? To pray in the name of Jesus. Pray with the blessing, okay. When you say, in Jesus' name we pray, what do you mean? According to His will. Yeah. According to His will. So in the name of Jesus is an expression. There's an interesting comment on this in Desire of Ages in which Ellen White says, to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray in the spirit and will of Jesus. So when I say in the name of Jesus at the end of my prayer, I'm saying in the will of God. Why do I anoint on the forehead? Because this is the forebrain, where conscience, reason, and judgment are located. And I am saying, God, I am surrendering all of my reasoning capacities to you. So when we anoint a person, they are calling, we explain that we have no power at all. We explain that the oil is a symbol of setting them aside by the Holy Spirit in consecration. That we are lifting them up in the will of God. And I say to them, it's God's will to heal you. But he may desire to heal you instantly. He may desire to heal you gradually. Or he may desire to let you give him glory and to sleep until he comes again. And we put this anointing oil on your head. Are you saying, God, I am willing to put my life in your hands. I'm willing to consecrate my life totally to you. I want the consecrating oil on my forehead to be set aside for God. I want only to give him glory. And if it brings you glory to heal me, heal me now. If it brings you glory to heal me gradually, do that. If it brings you glory to heal me in the resurrection, do that. And then the Bible says the prayer of faith, verse 15, will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven. This is a spiritual service. So the anointing is not only for physical healing, it's an anointing of the sick as a spiritual act of commitment, of dedication, where they present their body a living sacrifice to God. And the Bible says here, confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What's the difference between true and false healing? It's this. In false healing, we command God to do what we believe He ought to do right now. In false healing, the believer wants God to do their will. In true healing, the believer wants to do God's will. In false healing, there is the command of God. In true healing, there's submission to the way and purposes of God. In false healing... There's a public service for demonstration and show at times. In genuine healing, there is a private service. In false healing, there is no mention of repentance and commitment and consecration and dedication. In genuine healing, there is the the heartfelt prayer that my life will be right with God. In false healing, there is no discussion of sin and confessing sin. It's It's a mass thing that only wants spectacular. In the last days of Earth's history, God is going to work miraculous healings. And see his healings are going to be in contrast with the devil. There will be times when God's people, his servants, will be dying. And they will be set aside and consecrated to the Lord. And they will open their hearts and pour out their souls to God. I've had two experiences recently... Both came at an ASI convention about two years ago. I was there and a woman, middle-aged woman in her 40s, was dying of cancer. I was invited to come and to do an anointing service. I explained to her that as we put the oil on her head, that she was being consecrated to God. I explained to her that it was a spiritual service in which we were opening our hearts to God and asking him to manifest his hand in our lives. As we took out the anointing oil, I explained the Old Testament, the anointing of Aaron, the anointing of the vessels. The doctors had given this woman six months at most. She was planning to go on a mission trip and planning to preach. She had little hope. Because of the nature of this service, I want to be careful and guard the people very, very carefully because it was a very private, confidential service. We did the anointing. We had her family there and her husband, her children. There was weeping and tears. He spoke on how he had drifted away from God, but he was there at ASI and wanted to come back to God. The children opened their heart. There was genuine confession of sin in that room. And we knelt and held hands and prayed. A week went by, two weeks went by, and finally the family contacted me and they said, Mark, this is an amazing story, but God reached down and miraculously healed our mother of cancer. It was a miracle. There is no question in my mind it was a miracle. At that same ASI, I had a similar experience with another family. At the end of six months, the man called me and he said, Mark, I want to tell you a story. God did not heal my wife, she died. But I want to tell you that the last six months were some of the most glorious of my life. She witnessed to doctors, she witnessed to nurses, she witnessed. The issue was not one family had faith and the other didn't have faith, that wasn't the issue. The issue was this, in genuine healing, there's something more important than our healing, and that's the glory of God. In genuine healing, we want only one thing, God's glory. If it's God's glory for me to die, so be it. If it's God's glory for me to live, so be it. In false healing, God is manipulated to do what I want him to do, and the devil is preparing a whole generation who have drifted from careful study of God's Word. He's preparing that generation, as we've studied today, for spectacular signs and wonders. Here is the key in determining. This one sentence will help you determine the genuine from the counterfeit. In the genuine manifestation for the Holy Spirit, we are led to repentance, obedience, and a study of God's Word and a desire to witness. In the false manifestation, we are caught up in the euphoria of the moment rather than having our hearts transformed by the grace of God. Of this I am certain, I would rather die in the Lord than be healed by the devil. Of this I am certain, the genuine manifestation of the Holy Spirit will always lead to a broken heart. It will always lead to a transformed character. It will always lead to empowerment to witness, where the false always leads to be caught up in the sensational emotional moment of deception rather than the truth. I thank God that there's a whole generation of youth today that are longing for the genuine outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. Father in heaven, we know that before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, that there will be a revival of primitive godliness. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. And we know Satan desires to hinder this work. And before the time of the work of revival will come, before the loud cry and the latter rain, Satan will introduce a counterfeit. Lord, we don't want that counterfeit. We don't want a foot-stomping, hand clapping, sensational, emotional religion that is like a sweet sugar-coated candy in our mouth but leaves us hungry in our souls. What we want, Lord, is the genuine. What we want is the real. And if there's anything in our lives blocking that genuine, if there's some sin that we don't want to acknowledge, Lord, reveal it to us. Take it out of our hearts. Oh, Father, I pray thee that you would pour out your spirit on this GYC meeting. I pray that this would be the place that revival begins. This would be a place. You took a Daniel and changed an empire. You took a Joseph and changed a kingdom. You took a Paul and changed the Mediterranean world. And you're taking young people today and you're changing lives and changing schools and changing churches and changing conferences and unions. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be poured out upon us and that the genuine would be so obviously manifested in this place that there would be repentance of sin. There would be transformation of character. There would be empowerment for witness. And send us out to the world, Lord to share your love with others. In Christ's name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.